Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 215 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's 2-2-2-2-2. I'm Bobby Chesney. <laughs> I'm Steve Vladek. I knew there was a reason you wanted to record today, and it wasn't because we're about to go to World War III. Hey, you're lucky I didn't push for us to record in the afternoon, so I could say it is 2 222 22 22 22 22 22 22 22 22 22 22 22 22 22 22 22 22 22 22 22 22 22 22 22 22 dispute our local news station saying that today is a palindrome. Well, cause it, you need you, the leading zero. You, you have to count the leading zero. Or else, or else 2222 is becomes, also a palindrome. Yeah, and you got a 2022 mixed in there. I'm just, and, you know, yeah. it's why 111111 and 121212 were such cool dates. Although there's not, well, 111111 is a palindrome. 121212. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tw- yeah, as long as you drop the first two numbers. Well, Ka- so Karen, anyways, I got, Karen and I got married on 111211. 11, 12, that's pretty memorable. Yeah. You know, I, I was, our, Heather and I got married on uh, March 11th, 2000, which uh-huh. makes for some reasonably easy yes. uh, mathematical calculations yes. when I ponder. So my, my, my in-laws, Karen's parents, got married on July 4th, 1974, 7474. Oh, nice. I know. And, and this is no doubt everybody's alarm code. <laughs> well, no, no. <laughs> I could not <laughs> confirm nor deny. That seven four seven four is in way too many of their passwords. I've had this conversation with them. Are we, aren't I supposed to be an expert in cybersecurity or something? Should I be saying things like this? I, mean, I feel like I shouldn't. I, you know, I, I. That's right. The Russians are coming to get you, anyways. You know, does it matter at this point? The, the, nothing. Does anything matter at this point, Steve? All, all of our listeners are like, "Wow, their cybersecurity is out the window. Our, uh, our opsec is low." Okay, so. Um, by, by the way, I had this flashback yesterday. So. You know the the really horrifying 1980s HBO movie by Dawn's Early Light? Uh, I don't think I know that one. Remind me. Who's so this in that? is, um, oh gosh, it's based on a book called Trinity's something. It's it's about like this nuclear war. Oh, it's sort of a day after kind of yes. thing? Yes. Um, so Robert Landau, is that right? Martin Landau is the president. Um, James Earl Jones is the, is the guy up in kneecap. Um, nice. And it's like, you know. Um, Soviet separatists, because in the 1980s, right, steal a nuke and launch it at the Soviet Union, provoking the Soviet Union to respond, and uh, oh, wow. things go haywire. And, uh, oh, wow, that sounds good. Loose. Is it good? Sounds it's good. pretty good. There, there is an unnecessarily complicated Powers Booth, Rebecca de Mornay, love, love interest. They, they are the captain and co-pilot and first officer of a B-52 um, sent on oh, the grand some fraternization tour. going on? There's a little bit of power fraternization. Now, wait a minute. So is this, where, is this how Powers Booth gets shot down? Over the Rockies, and links up with a scrappy band of high school kids with the Wolverine mascot. <laughs> <laughs> a different movie. Oh, rats! Maybe anyway, it's a crossover. But, so, so to tie up, so for the four people listening to this podcast who know what movie I'm talking about, um, <laughs> the, t- the the crossover is that the the target of the nuke that starts everything off is Donetsk, um, which is you know of course which which was my first exposure to Donetsk as a place. Well, um, all too timely, we're going to talk about Russia and Ukraine today, and uh, maybe you, you mean the separatist region? No, just, the, the, t- the two new people's republics. Oh gosh! Oh my God! All right, uh, so a- AKA Ukraine. <laughs> two, two eastern you, you, parts of Ukraine. You, you know them as Ukraine. So we'll talk about some of that stuff, and then we'll talk through various things that may happen if there is escalation that goes on from here. Maybe touch on – we'll try to keep this on the law side of it. We'll try, although I have to say there was a New York Times headline yesterday that really set me off after Putin's speech. Oh, is it the one where they're like, Putin sets forth a strong case In for- a fiery speech, President Vladimir Putin made the case that Ukraine is, by history and makeup, an integral part of Russia. So I quote. You sure that wasn't in Pravda? So I said, in a fury speech, Hitler made the case that the Sudetenland was by history and makeup an integral part of Germany. I'm like, come come on, on, guys, come on. (laughs) This isn't like some new thing. This is an old thing. What's the thing about history? History rhymes. Rhymes. It doesn't repeat. It rhymes. This is pretty rhymey. Oh my gosh. Well, this is pretty repeaty, actually. It's both repeaty and rhymey. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, there's that episode title. It's repeaty and rhymey. (laughs) It's repeaty. And rhymey. I or, like that. Or history is repeaty and rhymey. Which, you know, which is probably better than um, our going in plan. Juwan Howard's mad about the wrong time out. Juwan Howard is mad about the wrong time out. <laughs> or we don't talk about Bruno. Oh, we don't talk about, no. We don't talk about Juwan? We don't talk about Ukraine? We don't talk about Putin? May, yeah, well, we are going to talk, <laughs> as you may have guessed in the frivolity, we're going to talk about Encanto. Well, but they talk about Bruno. Like, were they, were they after do? we don't talk about, the whole song is talking about Bruno. And we're going to talk about Juwan It's ironic, Howard don't you think? Bit. 
By the way, we're in case you couldn't tell, in case it sounds like we're a little livelier than usual. Oh, yeah. We're back at we're we're looking at each other. We're in person. We're in person. We're back in the studio. This is bad. No, it's good. Well, this yes. Sound quality's better and the that, well, that the distraction you. levels through the roof, you can tell. Like we're even more distracted. <laughs> Look at those bobbleheads. Well, wow, those are great. <laughs> Has anyone made a bobblehead of you, Steve? No. I bet that's I bet that's coming. No. That cannot I, be no, far off. No, I do not. There's, so, there's got to be a place online. Somebody send me a link to how to get this done. Too tall. Yeah, I'd be I'd be too tall for a bobblehead. I topple <laughs> over. Oh man, that's another episode title. Too tall for a bobblehead. Too tall for no. I think uh, it's repeating and rhymey is repeating and rhymey is pretty good. Okay, well let's let's get into it. Uh, where to begin? So, um, first of all, let's start on home territory with what's actually happened. Yes. Um, and so the the move that Vladimir Putin made was to recognize as independent republics two regions of the eastern part of Ukraine. Uh, labeling them both people's republics, which <laughs> is a really, uh, it's kind of on the nose. The show writers or showrunners, what's the right word for the, that? The, the showrunners? Well, the, the runners are the ones who are in charge of the show. The writers are the one. The writers are the ones who are adjusting the plot. So the writers had fun with this one. Yeah, that's a little on the nose with the calling them people's republics, but whatever. The reconstitution of the uh, Soviet Union commences. And um, Steve, from a uh, UN charter perspective, <laughs> uh I don't think this is a, this isn't a close call, but there's complexities that, that are worth commenting on. Which, of course, was the whole point. The the, the whole point of this is to insert uh, forces into eastern Ukraine overtly in a way that's muddy from, or at least can be made to feel muddy or portrayed as muddy from a uh, UN Charter violation perspective. Like this, the reality here is very obviously a violation of Article. Two four and the territorial integrity and the political independence of of Ukraine is obviously been grossly grossly violated in the in the maximum extent. I suppose the only way to do it worse would be to literally uh, destroy it, um, but to seize it is just as bad, and uh, that's what's happened here. The muddy element, of course, is to play the diplomatic recognition trick. Yeah. And here it's it's worth pausing. You know, why is this tricky? Well, we we've seen ver- it's a, there's a theme, and it can be varied in different directions. When uh, when Gaddafi was still in charge of Libya, and there were questions about uh, there were there were Security Council resolutions that authorized certain uses of force there, but they were limited very sharply in scope to go further, especially to go in the direction of actually actively uh, taking steps towards toppling the regime. Uh, the Security Council resolution wasn't enough. So one move that uh, I, I believe it was Sarkozy in France, uh, they they recognized the uh, rebels as the legitimate right. government of Libya. And then and, said they had a responsibility to protect them. And and were coming in at their invitation. And This is, by the way, how West Virginia became a state. The, uh, uh, yeah, unpack that for everybody. Sorry. So the way this, during the Civil War, the way West Virginia becomes a state is there are 39 counties in the northern part of then Virginia that did not that were opposed to secession and that declared themselves to be the true democratic government of the Commonwealth of Virginia and that then assented to the creation of a new state called West Virginia because the Constitution requires that a state consent to a state formed from part of its territory. And so this sort of game of, well, it, it, it's kind of like the old saw about the he who controls the exception controls the power. Yes. Um, it's the same idea. If you actually can just shift around, well, who, who counts as the holder of sovereignty, then you can just put it in the hands of your, of your patsy if you yes. want, and yes. they, which is what Putin's done here. And then they can turn around and say, oh, thank you for helping us. Would you now? And, and it's, it is a tricky issue because there are plenty of examples like toppling Gaddafi where the, the, the underlying policy and moral merits seem to point in a different direction. Well, and indeed, and, and the move allows for humanitarian intervention, right, that might otherwise not be consistent with the UN Charter. So this also reminds me, do you, you may recall this better than I, but I believe in Panama, mm-hmm. the U.S. invasion of Panama, yeah. where Noriega... Uh, was in power, but part of what went down was U.S. diplomatic recognition of, I forget the person's name, but whoever the, uh, the, the Democratic Forces opposition leader was, who then, who then on the tarmac immediately says, like, you know, I request the help of the United States. Um, so Putin and his, his team are trying to lean into this sort of tradition in order to justify or put a patina, a very thin patina of legality over what they've done. The fact remains, if you just step back and say, okay, what was the status quo before? Ukraine, 
a country. Right. What is this status quo now? He has purported to just recognize the independence of two uh, component parts, and that is obviously a violation of the UN Charter. In yes. this case, it's, yes. it's so transparent. True. All right. So, um, and, and different from West. Let me just say, less people think I'm saying West Virginia is the same thing. No, the difference in the West Virginia case is that the actual legitimate like governing body of Virginia had absented itself, right? And so, therefore, I think quite. Michael Paulson and I think uh, Vasan Kasavan, they have this article called Is West Virginia Unconstitutional, where they explain, I think, quite persuasively why it isn't. Right. And I would add, so if anyone's wondering, like, well, you know, nonetheless, though, if this is what the people of, of the eastern regions of right. Ukraine want. Self-determination. Oh, well, well, I was supposed to know there was Ukraine. Oh, let's back up. Ukraine already was invaded by the Russians. Yes. The little green men stratagem. Yes. They just didn't do it overtly and didn't own up to it. And they created facts on the ground and then seized the whole darn thing. So, so there are already was an invasion. And so to then come along and say that in the aftermath of our earlier invasion, where we now have complete control of these regions, there's now been an independence movement, which we hereby <laughs> recognize. It's a little bit rich, uh, to put it mildly. Our, our soldiers have voted overwhelmingly for independence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So so um, this muddies the waters for the United States, which set well, invasion but, as a red line. Right. Uh, but it's not been muddy enough to prevent sanctions to begin, most notably Nord Stream 2 going down so a few North hours Sh ago. So, it, right, would you call that a – so that's a, that, that's not formally a sanction, No, right? not a sanction. That's, no, a, it's, that's it's, just a political – that's just allowing a, a, allowing a diplomatic agreement to base – allowing this, this carefully negotiated thing to fall apart. We're not going to do business right. with you after all. Correct. Yeah. Um, but can we – let's talk about sanctions, right? So there's the, – the question is, so what – kinds of sanctions could the Biden administration now impose? And Bobby, I think that requires us to talk about our favorite statute. Three, two, one. AIPA. <laughs> oh, well done. <laughs> we are the biggest nerds. We are the biggest nerds. Oh, my God. But that's why people, you don't listen because we're cool. <laughs> In almost famous uh, Lester Banks, you're not cool, man. You're not, you're not cool, man. Um so, AIPA. Um, so, this is where – so, there's no, like, statute that specifically says go impose sanctions on Russia. Wait, we should back up. What if we have some new listeners who are like, what are they talking about? Okay. What is this weird word they shouted? So, um, a little bit of background. Um, in the 1950s and 60s, right, presidents had broad – although not clear whether it was unilateral or just sort of, like, not well-defined authority, right, to um, – presidents exercise. Let me not say they had. Presidents exercise broad authority to impose – Economic sanctions on various actors in what they in proclaimed emergencies, uh, and I would just add, uh, very often delegated by a slew of congressional statutes under the Foreign Commerce Power. Right, but none of what, but but many of which were not especially specific. Um, yep. and, and, so, and Curtis Wright, the famous Curtis Wright yes. case, says that's okay. Non delegation has no teeth, basically, <laughs> in the foreign affairs context. Back at a time when it otherwise did have teeth in the domestic context. The, the, uh, that little window. Cass Sunstein, right? The non delegation doctrine had one good year and lots of bad ones. Um, <laughs> Which reminds me about this. It's just a good the, the amount of this is not. We should do an episode about non delegation in the founding because that'd be the, interesting. The Nick Bagley, Julian Mortensen stuff on this is so good. Anyway, um, so um, as part of in 1976, Congress passes the National Emergencies Act. The goal of which is to clean up the national emergencies regime. One of the things that the National Emergencies Act does is it actually thereby really sort of cult. Calls in, like brings in a lot of those old authorities. So Congress responds one year later by creating a more specific regime called IEPA, the International Economic Emergency Powers Act um, of 1977. Is it is it economic emergencies or is it international emergency economic powers act? I think it's economic emergency because I think the whole point is it's economic emergencies, not all emergencies. But let me see. Okay, so while you're checking that out, uh, it is the International Emergency Economic Powers right, Act. Because it's oh, Bobby wins. The, okay, because so, the emergencies might be of a non-economic ah, nature, but the powers to be deployed are economic. Are the powers of economic coercion, sanctions? Touche. I should have I should have realized that. Okay. Yeah, yeah it's easily easily too uh, many E's. That's, that's why we only say IEPA, guys. That's why we say IEPA. We don't remember <laughs> the E's. It's like after 9-11, Congress passes the Air Transportation System Safety Stabilization Act with like there are four S's, like ATSSS. <laughs> like, they need to think more carefully about these acronyms. Um, all right, it's all right, like so, Darwin. So like, a name like that doesn't. Make, by the way, those are not acronyms. Those are initialisms. <laughs> IEPA is an acronym. I'm with you. USA Patriot Act. Uh, acronym. United in strengthening America by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism. Oh my God, that's so, <laughs> that's so bad, <laughs> just, guys! Guys, just follow the British model. Just be like the Terrorism Act of two thousand one. Real simple. Just real. It's, it's, keep it's, it simple. It's calmer. Oh man, and it's also it also takes up fewer words in law review articles and briefs. 
That's true. Um, all right. So Back to Aipa. Aipa. So Aipa yeah. says, hey, President, you can declare an emergency, right, relating to various world conditions. And the declaration of an emergency gives you various sanctions powers that you would not otherwise have. It's a power that presidents have exercised ever since. Um, I don't think it's especially controversial in separation of powers land. Like it is a not at all. Look, I think it's a slam dunk. Yeah, it's a delegated Congress power has the foreign commerce power. Yep. it's delegated to the president. Uh, the delegation's broad, but a non-delegation is toothless at this point, at least for now. It's especially and, toothless and, as applied to foreign and affairs. Always was, and the Supreme Court said so. And Curtis Wright, yep. there you go. And so he, and so that's the default. I always think of this as the president carries around a pre-delegated set of tools yep. that can be used for basically anything that, with a straight face, he will call national an international emergency type situation. And then there's a, a series of more specific delegations that reflect, A, that Congress wants to be seen to attending to certain things, like yep. the Magnitsky Act. Yep. Um, you've got some situations where Congress sort of superfluously says, by the way, we really want you to use your sanctions powers, and we're going to re-gift them to right. you. Well, and, indeed, and just in case there's any doubt as to whether IEPA extends to this circumstance, right, here's a statute that confirms that it does. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so there, there are lots of tools, and there, there are a variety of these more specific examples. But they all boil down to the same thing. The president decides whether the trigger's been met, and if so, can either directly in an executive order or by delegation either to Treasury yeah. or sometimes to Commerce, can put in motion bureaucratic machinery for the, the lower levels of the bureaucracy to decide yep. which particular entities are now, foreign entities yep. only, all, only foreign entities, are going to be basically blockaded, embargoed, uh, you know, denied, listed, whatever you want to call it. Um, have, it. Have assets frozen. Exactly. And so they can calibrate who is it that gets touched, you know, with the ugly stick. And then who is it or what is it that entities subject to American law can no longer do. And these orders are backed automatically. I think it's 50 U.S. Code 1705. It's a criminal yep. uh, criminal law with conspiracy provision yep. attached no, vi- to right. it. Violations, violations of IEPA orders are prosecutable. Yeah, and they, and they function, 1705 functions like the material support law, if that's more familiar to yes. some of you. It, it makes the designated entities taboo to interact with in the way that the order specifies. And so it may be that you can't transact, period. It may be you can't do certain types of financial transactions. But in this case, the question that's been uh, looming out there is, in addition to all the particular Russian entities already subject to sanctions. (laughs) Of which there are many. Which we do not lack. um, How many more? And how how much will we use uh, the intelligence community's knowledge of exactly where the money really is. And Lord knows Putin's got a lot of it. You know, it's funny. You are much more the IC expert than I am. And and I'm sure there are listeners who would put both of us, but especially me, to shame on this front. But it strikes me that one of the remarkable things about developments coming out of Russia and Ukraine in the last couple of weeks is how out front the Biden administration has been in publicizing what we know, yeah. right? As a way, I, I assume, right, as a way of sort of preempting Russia's Absolutely. efforts to manufacture like a Reichstag fire. Yeah, let's let's riff on that for a second because I think it's a really cool illustration of one of the capacities of the intelligence apparatus. Um, you know, in, in teaching intelligence community stuff, there's always a threshold question of what counts, what is an intelligence activity? Now, everyone agrees that espionage and counter-espionage. Those are core. That's the inner circle. Right. Um, stealing their secrets. Stealing And preventing secrets, them from stealing yeah. our secrets. And then and related to that, though, often overlooked because it's usually not very legally interesting, is the analysis function. So the work of analyst is core intelligence activity. Right. Like turning, once you've got the information, once you've got the raw take. Yeah, f- turn it into product yes. for, the, for the customers. And then, of course, in the United States, we're very aware, and most places are aware, that Usually it's an intelligence agency because of the types of things you would be doing for espionage anyways, makes sense to have them also be, or have some version of them be the covert action to the extent that your, your country has uh, a capacity to try to influence events in ways that you will not acknowledge or admit you were responsible for, then that's covert action and, and somebody in the intelligence community they don't have to do it. You could have your military do it. Sometimes militaries do do this sort of thing, but that's a classic intelligence activity. And then usually it stops there. But it's interesting how you can do these variations. You can try to influence events by disclosing what your espionage capabilities and your analysts have uh, have sort of derived as knowledge from that. And the way it works is to put into the public. It works the same way that a targeted leak in Washington works. Mm-hmm. It is an attempt to inflect the course of policy by putting the uh, thing that maybe is going to happen 
out there in the sunlight where everyone now knows that it's going on ex ante. And, and which, among other things, deprives the putative bad actor of the ability to claim surprise. Right. It really, you know, it, it just it sort of changes the correlation of forces around them as they think about taking that step. Yep. Now, it's why don't we see more of this sort of, first of all, this sort of thing doesn't always come announced as a revelation of what our intelligence yes. community knows. Yeah. That's the first thing. It doesn't always come directly from a U.S. <laughs> official. There are cutouts, perhaps, yes. and, and I'm speaking generally, not just about the U.S. So who knows? You may This may happen more often than not, um, or more often than one expects. But also, there's a cost. There's a yeah. downside in that. Uh, so can I give a famous yeah. example? Yeah, yeah. So the Soviet Union's first nuclear test, right, is in the summer of 1949, I want to say, somewhere. Something what, around there. Right. Yeah. Um, so the Soviet Union did not know that we had the technology to measure radioactive tests in the air, that we had a specially configured superfortress that flew around collecting air samples, and that, 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 which is how we actually discovered the test. Like, we didn't have satellites back then. Right, right, right. right. We discovered the test because of air samples taken by a, B, a B-29 overflight, right? When Truman goes public that we had discovered the test, right, he actually disclosed to the Soviets that we had the technology to do it. Right, and so when you, when you do this, this, this is one of the things that, as commander-in-chief, the president is in a position— This when we talk about presidential judgment in national security, one of the many areas where it really looms large is that sort of Oval Office decision that there is a strategic interest that is worth revealing yep. the capacity, thus endangering the capacity by, by tipping off the other side, which will then engage in counterintelligence efforts. Uh, or, or whatnot. So, um, yeah, so maybe some of the revelations here have revealed— it, it maybe has sort of triangulated whose uh, phones we're maybe. listening to. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? But it sure seems like it's worthwhile. It's very possible that the UK came out first, I believe, yes. on this. By the way, let's back up. The This is um, the idea that there were going to be uh, falsified videos and other things to try to precipitate. Attacks on. Border incidents. Right. Yeah. Border incidents caused, putatively caused by the Ukrainians. Right. So the, the UK came out early on first saying like, hey, we have intelligence showing that they're planning basically to to mock up a border incident. Right. And this is bogus. Don't be fooled. Right. We have and intelligence then, that Hitler set up the Reichstag fire. Exactly. Exactly. So getting it out there first means you impact the narrative first. The first thing everyone hears about this is there's a fake story coming, which really flips the script on what usually happens, which is the fake story happens first and you, and then you never get fake. the truth out. Right. Yeah. Truth can't catch up with the lie. So get the truth out first. And I have to say, I think that, so to, to, with all credit to the British and American intelligence apparatus, like I think that's been a big part of why this has been such a uniform condemnation, right? As opposed to, well, it's hey, you know, what, what, it's facts on the ground are messy, blah, like, you know, n- like. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what else I'll say too? Like, because it's worth thinking about, like, so China's watching this thing. Yes. Like, what does this all mean for what we could or could not get away with in Taiwan? China's watching, sort of, you know, chuckling. No, I'm sure. I mean, look, they've had laughs at everybody's expense for quite a while now. Um, you look at this and you think, all right, so the Russians don't really have a lot of leverage on other countries. And I think one of the lessons you take here is when you're going to take these kinds of aggression, right. uh, war crime, let's just call it what it is. It's a crime right. of aggression. You're going to yeah. take these steps. Um, you need a lot of leverage over a lot of other countries so that you can get people to basically corruptly say, well, I don't know. I think that this is, situation is muddier than right. you need those a, Americans you, you are need, saying. You need a couple other countries to recognize, for example, yeah, right? exactly. the, two, the two separatists. Uh, separatists, I put in quote, republics. Yeah, the, right? the, the two new people's republics. Yes. Uh, it's hard to say those words. Um, so anyways, okay. And, and it's interesting on that front that China, so far as I can tell, has been pretty quiet. Yeah, there was a real as uh, so Julian Ku is a good person to follow yep. on this stuff on Twitter, and he was he was observing how mealy mouth some of the English language yeah. diplomatic statements are. Um, but, so, but 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 I mean, mealy mouth from China at this point is I think preferable to you know right. Well, but China doesn't have to do anything hard diplomatic yes. and clear because yes. here's what will happen. We've been talking about the American sanctions framework. What you need, of course, is as universal a set of sanctions with other countries as possible. Where's the best way to get that? Where can you actually make everybody do it, in theory? Go to the Security Council. Steve, why won't that work? Uh, there's a country on the security. I, I believe the current president of the Security Council is Russia. Right. So the P5, <laughs> the Power 5, uh, you know. The, Whoops. <laughs> the Power 5, that's sports talk. The permanent <laughs> The Power 5, five conferences. <laughs> the Power 5 conferences. I'm sure there's an analogy there. 
the permanent five members, the World War II victors, have vetoes. So there will be nothing more than talk out of the Security Council. That's guaranteed. And China doesn't have to embarrass itself by actually, right. you know, they might abstain, though. They yeah, might they, they might choose to abstain. But, but I mean, the, the, nothing turns on what they do, right? Because right. uh, if you assume Russia's vetoing anything. Right, exactly. So the Security Council isn't going to do anything. That means not that there can be no sanctions. That means that every country has to actually just decide for itself what yep. it's going to do. Yep. And I thought it was hardening that the Germans, who in many ways are with, with the, the natural gas issue yep. and dependence on Russian gas supply, there's been good reason to fear, like, would they or would they not step up here? Well, they stepped up. They, 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 they yeah. canned no, Nord, Stream Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 is a, I mean, this is like, Nord Stream 2 is a big early sign of like, no one's letting Putin, like, you know, the, there are going to be consequences. Yeah. Now he's got, now this is interesting, you, you got to figure Putin, his end game might be these two new people's republics. His in game might think, be this cannibal. So? Well, at this point, yeah. at this point, he may think like, "All right, I don't know if I can go further." Right. I've gotten a lot though, because now I have Russian forces, right. you know, fully, right. overtly, Eastern, and right. openly in, in this country. Yeah. And by the way, let's not forget how thoroughly this has brought the the Russian army permanently into Belarus, right up to yes. those borders. Yes. Which so he's exten- he kind of had that before, but this is like no, no. Now there's troops. There and they're not going back. At yeah. least a lot of them aren't going back. So he's extended the deployment frontier westward substantially. He might decide to walk back from that. That said, if you watched any of the or read any of the English translations of his wacko, scary, like Doctor Evil speech to his to his own NSC yesterday, which was televised, did you see the brutal humiliation of his own spy chief? Yes. I mean, it was like worse than like 1960s law school Socratic method the yes. way he was pounding his own guy. Yes. Wow. Okay. Um, but did you see? Did you see the AP? The the AP reporter in Kiev. Did you see the this this Twitter clip of him? Is this the thing where he spoke six different languages? Six different languages. <laughs> that was impressive. I'm like, wow. I, I, I could. I have trouble I, I with my. One I was going to say I can't speak one language. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I, I say I, about I, legal consequences. I, I had trouble. Picking, so the second language, if you've seen the clip, right? Five of the languages I think are really quickly identifiable. The second language in the clip is Luxembourgish. I had to go look that. I had to go run that down. Okay, I, I will admit, in it, with apologies to our, our listeners in Luxembourg, that I thought they spoke German. I, so apparently, there's a it's a sufficiently distinct. Di- so it doesn't like it didn't sound like pure German to me when I heard it, which is why it felt weird. That's very cool. I love that. Well, um, okay. So as we think about escalation steps, yes. um, I'll, I'll just observe this. So you're you're. Right now in a situation where there have been some significant sanctions blows and people are wondering, where's the White House? And frankly, while we're talking, who knows what's dropping? But the word on the street is that there's just an effort to get everyone lined up, get everyone lined up to act kind of as as uniformly as possible. So we may see some substantial sanctions against particular entities coming out, but it'll be calibrated in part because the step that Putin has taken so far isn't yet the drive on Kiev, Right. So there's got to be some headroom above the steps we take now to stop him at, to get him to stop at least where he's at. Uh, if things go further and the sanctions kind of go all out and there's something close to a full attempt to shut the Russian you know, economy out of the, the Western financial system, for example, kicking them off of SWIFT would be a big thing to look for. Um, then, since the Russians, of course, might inclined at that point to respond in kind, but they don't have this, their sanctions are meaningless for the vast majority of Western entities. Um, That's where a lot of people think that he'll turn to his cyber capabilities to achieve something like the effect of strong financial sanctions, but doing it through direct action and disruption rather than through uh, economic formal legal mechanisms. And there will be some really tough questions at that point about how prepared are we which is why DHS CISA has been really pushing their, their initiatives called Shields Up, which I greatly appreciate. So it's a Shields Up moment. If there's anything your organization has contemplated and could do, like activating two-factor authentication, now's the time to barge into the C-suite and demand that that step be taken. Um, but from the U.S. point of view, how to characterize any kind of direct action attributable to the to the Russians, I almost said Soviets, but same difference at this point, um, to, to them, and whether to characterize that as having escalated into an armed attack on the United States, this starts to get into a very scary and tricky domain where I'm confident the administration is going to move very carefully and really control the wording on, on what's going on. I doubt very much 
that they're going to talk about armed attack and and suggest that this is going to escalate to that level. But I do imagine that we would fairly quickly respond in kind with Cyber Command's capabilities, or I hope we might. Um, and and we could be in a really challenging and difficult situation there. And of course, this is nothing else than a classic escalation risk yep. uh, scenario in which both sides are wondering who's willing to go a little bit further. It's a game of chicken, in short. And uh, you know, I think the best you can hope for right now is that Putin actually is somewhat satisfied with what he's already ingested from the Ukraine and isn't madly driven to complete the rest. His words recently suggest he might be madly driven to complete the rest of the acquisition. Very disturbing. <sighs> when are we going to have happy news on this podcast? Uh, in, that's what the frivolity segment is for, my friend. <laughs> that is what frivolity is for. Uh, right, do you so want to turn to Trump litigation? I, if we must. We must. Trumplandia never, never fully goes away. It never closes. You can oh. check out any time you want. <laughs> You can insert solo here. All right. Um, what's happening with uh, the various Trump civil suits that are floating around? We've, we've got this uh, very interesting ruling that took the occasion to characterize, is that fair to say, the uh, the impact and import of his speech on January 6th yeah, in so, relation yeah. to the insurrectionists? So this is Judge Mehta's ruling from last week. So um, there's a big, you know, there are a series of lawsuits that have been filed against President Trump arising out of January 6th. Um, this is the Benny Thompson one and Congressman Thompson. And um, Mehta's rule, I mean, it would take, I think, probably too long to go through all of it because there are a lot of claims and a lot of defendants. The short version is that Judge Mehta denied in substantial part Trump's motion to dismiss the incitement claims and the 1985 conspiracy claims um, based upon his speech and his conduct on the day of the insurrection itself. Um, doesn't mean the plaintiffs win. It means he does not think it is clear at the motion to dismiss stage of litigation that Trump is entitled to immunity, um, at least in part because he concluded that there's a plausible incitement claim um, and that there is a plausible argument that Trump's conduct falls outside the, quote, outer perimeter, unquote, of his official duties. And so he's not entitled to absolute immunity under Nixon versus Fitzgerald. So this is the intersection of immunity law with Brandenburg yes. as the, the incitement uh, free speech line case. Um, and one question that lurks in the background is, will, that, will the doctrinal line of Brandenburg, so um, you know, the, the speech is likely to produce an imminent Law in imminent, not in the uh, the counterterrorism <laughs> meaning of the word, if you know what I mean, but rather in the actual literal meaning of the word, as in strict temporal eminence. Is it likely to precipitate imminent laws, lawless action? Um, and wasn't intended to produce such and, action, and, right? And there's got so you have to have intent. The time element has to be very tight, yes. and it's got to be a likelihood, not yes. just a possibility. Yes, um, I think it's actually very interesting. I've I've looked at one time way back when, maybe even on this show. I think we yeah. talked about this. I look pretty closely if you read the speech as yes. opposed to looking at it as it. If happened. you read the speech, it's a harder case. Very hard. Yes. I actually think it's kind of hard to say that it's across but the it, line. But if you if you if you if you a watch the speech and b fold it into a broader context of Trump claims over the weeks leading right. up to January then it, 6th. Then it looks a little different. And see, add the tweets after the speech. So so there's a, there's an, let's just say this is a law school exam worthy scenario for uh, testing the boundaries of Brandenburg. And then there's a question of whether the Brandenburg line will actually stay where it is. Yes. Um, so but I, I don't anticipate, if I had to say now and had to guess now, would I say that at some point he would be, his speech would be found to be actionable? Probably not, because I think that couldn't be decided in his case without going all the way to the court, and I just don't think this court's going to... So here's the complication. So now I got to be a procedural nerd for a second. Um, the denial of a motion to dismiss on grounds of absolute immunity is immediately appealable, right? Um, that's Mitchell versus Forsyth. And so Trump can take this ruling right to the D.C. Circuit, and no one plausibly disputes that. Like, I mean, that's... Yeah, that's it, right? just basics. The Brandenburg claim is not tied to like it's like you know whether they're whether whether the plaintiffs have stated a claim under Brandenburg is not does not implicate the immunity defense and so I would argue and I have I have not argued in this context but Wait, I've can argued you elsewhere. unpack that a little bit I didn't quite yeah. follow it so the when you appeal after a final judgment 
right? The yep. whole case goes up on appeal. Oh, I see. So the part that's interlocutory appealable is not the Brandenburg part. So in the, okay. like, at least in theory, now the Supreme Court has been squishier about this in recent years, but at least in theory, um, an interlocutory appeal, which for the non-lawyers means an appeal before final judgment, an appeal while they're still, an appeal in the middle of the case, basically. Yeah, let's just stop the case and we right. go appeal this thing right. and spend months Interlocutory appeals are supposed to be limited to the matter that is appealable prior to final judgment. Um, and so in this case, that is literally just the denial of absolute immunity. Um, so it is not clear to me at all that even when Trump appeals the denial of absolute immunity, he's going to be able to take the Brandenburg issue up now. And, and if you're yeah. Trump, what you don't want is you don't want discovery on the Brandenburg issue because you don't want to sit for a deposition. You don't want emails. It'll be like the congressional investigation. But but with the but with the what but with the immediate force of judicial contempt. Exactly. Yeah. 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 He didn't want that. So you do want to play out the interlocutory appeal as long as you can. Of course, including going to the Supreme Court. It's just not clear to me that the Brandenburg issue will be properly before I. I mean, it's certainly it's certainly not clear to me that it'll be properly before the Court of Appeals. The irony here, as I've. I think I might be one of the only people who have ever written, is that the Supreme Court's jurisdiction is broader than the Court of Appeals' jurisdiction. So you can have a circumstance where the Brandenburg issue is not properly in the Court of Appeals, but actually is properly in the Supreme Court. So you might have some justices who also think there's the shortcut to this whole thing. This is protected speech. Without touching on the absolute immunity yeah, issue. Absolutely, yeah. Because, I, they, I could see because that. they might be wary about uh, sort of a holding like, they might be wary about sort of taking a position one way or the other on where the outer perimeter of the president's official duties is. Part of what's interesting about that is it could produce a, a, a reinforcement and restatement of Brandenburg that, that reinforces speech, a, a, a the speech, doctrinal lines. A, a speech, speech protective Brandenburg Look, I mean, that, that's the story of free speech law is these cases tend to be ones – these are not cases you're like, oh, I'm so glad that that ordinary political figure right. was free to say this. Right. That, those aren't the cases. Right. The, Westboro, the Westboro Baptist Church, right? I know. It's Skokie, right? Yeah. I mean, like this, is, this yeah. is where the line – the lines aren't drawn in the easy cases. Yes. Um, or as Justice Frankfurter would say, our most, our most important procedural safeguards were made for cases involving not very nice people. Exactly. Uh, or as, as – uh, is it uh, Bolt says in Man for All Seasons uh, has Sir Thomas More or uh, yeah didn't More say uh, what is it uh, I'd give the devil himself the benefit of the laws for my own sake or for the laws' sake so one of the one of the other yeah, yeah. yeah yeah that's that's the whole point of saying it's the rule of law but we digress but we digress uh, uh, is there other litigation cooking there is but there's too much of it well do you want to switch to a happier topic. Um, the, 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 yeah, the Michigan-Wisconsin fight. We should, before we go to frivolity, we should note um, one other, I think, really important but largely mm, overlooked development since we last recorded, um, a bunch of PRB clearances at Guantanamo. Yeah, so they continue to, to line up at the exit gate. Now, nobody's still going anywhere, but the periodic review board process under the Biden administration keeps producing has been yeah. slowly working its way through the set of non-military commission defendant Guantanamo. Right, 27 of the 39, I think, yeah. are, are in that bucket. And I, yeah. we're up to like, we're up to, I think, what, two thirds of them yeah. have now been cleared by so PRBs. What's, so what's the logjam for releasing those folks? There's two things. Uh, Secretary of Defense Austin has to put his name on the paper saying that the conditions of the transfer are such that I am guaranteeing that we have reasonable or adequate security precautions. I, I don't have any particular reason to doubt that he feels willing to do that. But we've seen in the past, including in the Obama administration, the secretaries of defense have taken that pretty darn seriously and have really scrutinized this. They have, yeah. This has not been a rubber stamp for them. No reason to think that Austin would rubber stamp it. Yeah. So there's that question of whether they do, in fact, have some concerns in some of these cases, especially considering where some might be repatriated to, which we don't know from the outside, but we can wonder. Um, and then secondly, and more likely the, the world big wonders. problem. Yeah, the world wonders. Uh, just <laughs> the sheer diplomatic wranglings that go on. Um, you know, it's a difficult bargaining position for the United States going to these other countries and saying, you know, take back this individual and we really, really need you to. And they say, oh, do you? How, how badly do you want us to take them back? And so between that, between the security considerations and the wranglings or negotiation that may be going on, nobody's going out yet. And maybe there's an element, too, of trying to make sure this is timed properly so as to not – because when, when there are transfers out of Guantanamo, there's going to be an attempt to make some political hay out of no it. No kidding. So they need to – you know, this, this would be a good 5 p.m. Friday sort of activity uh, when there's not already some other thing going on. Who knows? Maybe we'll see 
something happens soon. I don't actually think the American public is, att- is as attuned or invested in this anymore as you No, to be the but case. that won't stop Ted Cruz and his friends from making. There, hey, there will be criticism, yes. no question about it. I just don't think it's going to land the way it would have right. 10 years ago. Um, I, on the Trump, I, I skipped one thing on the Trump litigation. This morning, the Supreme Court denied cert in the NARA case. Um, that's not a surprise because the court had, on January 19th, already denied Trump's application for emergency relief. Right. So. And the documents had been turned over to the January 6th committee. So denying cert was sort of nail, uh, inevitable. Last nail in a coffin that's already in the ground, I guess. Yeah. Um, one other thing that we, should, we won't talk about today, but I do want to talk about soon. Um, you know, the, there's this district court ruling from January 3rd. Um, blocking the Navy's vaccine mandate for SEALs, for Navy SEALs. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, and so the, the government is asking the Fifth Circuit to stay that decision. Um, and I think the, we expect the Fifth Circuit to rule shortly. So maybe we'll hold off till the Fifth Circuit rules. But like, Interesting. Interesting. it's a, sort of for all of the hostility to vaccine mandates going around the lower courts, like this one, <laughs> I mean, the notion that it's appropriate, I am no fan of the military deference doctrine, which is the sort of the 35, 40 year old doctrine that in general, courts should defer to policy judgments by the military about what's best for service members. But the notion that Navy SEALs, right, um, that courts know better than the Navy, right, right, what the vaccination requirements should be for Navy SEALs. Well, when in general, the military requires vaccinations of all kinds, all the right. time in longhouse. And when the Navy has told the courts that if they can't get vaccinated, they will not be deemed combat ready, right? <laughs> They're Navy SEALs. Like, I mean, right, right. so so I, I have some views about this case that perhaps we can revisit when the Fifth Circuit decides whether or not to stay the district court's yeah, Let's keep an eye on that one for sure. But who boy. All right. So what went down? Frivolity time, folks. Frivolity. We're going to pivot to sports ball and then and to Disneyland. Um, oh, Disneyland. That's true. I, uh, I, was, I was just there. Oh, uh, yeah. We're literally, well, not literally, but uh, we will actually <laughs> talk about Disneyland. But first, Juwan Howard. Juwan Howard, okay. man. So for those who didn't uh, watch this, uh, Michigan and Wisconsin are playing. Wisconsin's beaten them pretty solidly. It's a frustrating game. Which is, in a I mean, frustrating it, it's season. a frustrating season. I mean, yeah. Michigan has radically underperformed expectations. Right. So there's sort of an, a frustration layer. Yes. Now it's late in the game. The scrubs are in for Wisconsin. Uh, there are still some starters on the floor for Michigan. Right. And Juwan Howard has them press. Right. And the, yeah, in the final seconds, like they're having them press the scrubs. I think is it. Ticky tack. Oh, it's it's inappropriate. Oh, yeah, move. it's it's bad. I mean, it's it's, it's that it's cheap. that itself was bad sportsmanship. It's cheap. These are the scrubs. Let yeah. them have. Let them dribble down right. the court. Now it's not wrong. Like you couldn't yell at him. Right. There's no, a right. Cheap there's move. no. There's no like. Right. There, it's, it's like it's like the, the the unwritten rules of baseball. Right. Right. Like, exactly. Don't, you don't steal a base when you're up seven runs in the ninth inning. Exactly. Right. And and you don't press. The scrubs I, I will say in the final you, you could make an argument, right, that he wasn't trying to sort of. Gen- he wasn't trying to generate turnovers. He was trying to teach the starters who were still in the game a lesson, right? Like, like never, st- never give up. Or, right. or, well, which is why, like, you wouldn't want to like cause static over this after the game just based on this, right? So, so, um, apparent, so apparently, uh, oh, so the Wisconsin coach, right, calls a timeout, right, because they're about the trap is working right. and there's about to be a 10 second violation right. bringing the ball up, and so he calls timeout, right, to help the scrubs beat the press, right, yeah. like you know, uh, and Juwan Howard, coach reception. of Michigan, is mad about this. Now I think that is super inappropriate. He can't complain about that. So things. So apparently, so Howard doesn't want to shake the co- uh, coach guard, right? He doesn't want t- to to shake guard's hand in the line, right? Um, Which is bad sportsmanship. If, yeah, you know, I, yes, it is. There, there, there's bad, yes. Um, but then guard guard does something which I think like is not entirely appropriate either, which is he gets in John Howard's right. way, he touches him, and pu- like puts his arm on his shoulder to like yeah. not let him pass. Yeah, that was. That was, like, that was dumb and a mistake. Right. Like, it seems to me that up to that point, Juwan Howard's being a bad sport, and the right thing to do is just let him be a bad sport. And, you know, it's like when the Pistons walked off the court, right? The Michael Jordan's uh, reaction to the Pistons walking off the court when the Bulls finally beat them in the yeah. conference finals. Um, you know, just just laugh at them. Yeah, like, you're, you've got the high ground. Keep it. Right. Um, and then things get out of hand, and fisticuffs ensue, and it culminates with Howard... Um, Starting with a fist, but ending with an open hand and hitting one right. of Wisconsin's he assistant swings, coaches. Yes. He throws a punch, yes. but almost you almost think like at the last minute he's like, "What am I doing?" Yes. And he opens his hand, but he smacks 
one of the Wisconsin assistant coaches. And, and at this point, it's all just yelling. Yeah. He starts the fight. Yes. And that is a clear yes. red line. So I should say, so I am, as I think devout listeners of the podcast will know, I am a Michigan fan. My parents met at Michigan. I am I am not like, uh, for example, my friend Rakesh, who roots for that school down south, who would who would find any excuse to throw Michigan under the bus. Would that be the Ohio School. I mean, I you know some you, school. You, you you can call it what you want. Uh, Ohio State University. I, I don't know. I've heard <laughs> of it. Um, I think this is a fireable offense. It's close. He's lucky, right? He got yeah. five day, uh, five games. He got five, five games, games from the university. Forty thousand. I mean, he got he got five yeah. games from the university. Now the university is trying to sort of. You know, it just so happens that five games is the remaining number of regular season games yeah. Michigan has before the Big before Ten the tournament right. and potential co- and potential yeah. postseason play. So if I'm the conference, I come in and I I come in on top of that to ensure he doesn't coach in the tournament as well. Yeah, maybe. I I, I would I, so. If it's not fireable, I think I, I think it's at least the rest of the season and not just the regular yeah. season. The muddying factor is that the Wisconsin coach did t- he did yes. escalate it yes. from yes. from Juwan Howard's bad behavior yes. to the coach recklessly yes. in- increasing the heat and 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 and, and um, he got punished too, right? He got suspended for a game, I right. think. And so right now right? it's kind of proportional. It's it reflects I think. Five, I just five. You are the coach, right? Like you have, you are, you are the captain. You are, you yeah. have a responsibility that goes above and beyond. Right. What would everybody happen to a player who did this? What what discipline would the coach impose if a player Correct. threw a punch Correct. in the line? Right. It's just, you, you, I mean, like, yeah. I, I just, I, I, I think, I think the NCAA is a laughing stock in general, and I think that like its refusal to impose serious discipline when coaches, when coaches, right, cross these lines. Yeah. Is one of the reasons why it's a laughing stock. Uh, you know, here's another wrinkle. So he, in the post game press conference, he was not sorry. Right. He was defending his actions yes. instead of apologizing yes. for them the way he yes. should have. He only apologized after a day had gone by, and presumably the uh, the actual authorities in the university were yep. like, you know, there's only one way you stay in your that's job, right. and that's, that's right. to be sorry that's for right. this. And then, you know, like any allocution, it's it's uh, not as meaningful. Right. For right. Con- consciousness of guilt is not. Um, but and, and and you know, I, I I'm mindful, of course, that any time. You have this conversation. It takes on racial undertones, right? But I felt the same way when, like Brian Kelly, was like, you know, physically, you know, grabbing his players. Yeah. Like, I mean, just you, coaches have this unique and specific obligation, and there are Absolutely. so many. No, they're, they're the disciplinarians, right, and there are so many ways in which we don't like. You know, it's so easy right now for coaches to walk away, right, from their from the schools and the kids they recruited, and it's harder for the kids, right? And That's then, like, right. You know, I feel like the system right now is way too preferential in the treatment of coaches and it should be the other way around. Yeah, I agree. I agree with all that. Wow. All right. So, uh, in Kanto. We also, you, any Super Bowl commercials you want to talk? We, we haven't, we haven't, well, we haven't uh, recorded well, since, the, since the bowl of Super okay, Bowl. Okay. So I liked the Anna Kendrick, um, yeah, rocket mortgage spot a lot. Uh-huh. Um, I thought that was, uh, what was it called? Uh, Better off for Betty and uh, <laughs> Flip It Freddy or whatever some of those characters were. Yeah. That was that was that pretty. Was ge- that was genius. Yeah. I thought that was the most clever one. That really landed with me. So relevant to our podcast, I want to talk about the Coinbase ad. Was that was that the LeBron? Ad? No, that was the UPC code flashing across oh, the screen. That was uh, that was definitely my least. So I, so it strikes me that there's a lesson in that ad. Right, the QR code bouncing yeah. around. Sorry, the black I said UPC. Screen. I meant yeah, yeah, QR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like it's so. First, you can of all, get people to click on anything. That's the lesson, <laughs> right? Like, like talk about cyber vulnerabilities, right? I mean, that ad is like a. It, it was unintentionally to me a fundamentally powerful lesson that no one that all the wrong that no one learned. Everybody's like, oh, I wonder what this is. Uh, I'm curious. I'm, I'm curious what this random QR like, code on my screen is. You know, you trust that the powers that be at whatever channel was it NBC who carried that? I guess. That they would have screened it, but you know, you don't know. You don't know. Um, I agree. I agree. That was ridiculous, and also just like bad marketing. Like all that did was make me associate was it Coinbase? Yeah. With uh, with sort of you know scams. It the whole thing reeked of scam. Not that I'm saying it to, was, but to it, you. Have, but like, how many people clicked on the QR code? No, right, right, right. Right. I mean, how many hits did but, their website? But how get? many how many people then who saw what it was were furious to see like they'd been taken to what looked like they'd clicked on a scam leak. It's basically how it read. It, it wasn't like you got there. You're like, oh, I cool! Know. I'm I, on the Bud Light commercial homepage. I don't know how many people were furious. Like, I feel like, like on the on the in law meter, like, right? Oh yeah, what was the reaction? I, don't, I you know, I feel like it was the, uh, were oh, they like, hey, clever. I'm gonna get rich on this. No, oh. I mean, like, <laughs> no, but like, you know, clever, right? Like, but um, meanwhile, yeah. so it 
what's so what's interesting? So Coinbase's CEO was like, we didn't like anything that the ad agency gave us, so we came up with this. And then the ad like agency, I can tell. and then the ad agency, per, no, no. And then the ad agency person comes back and says, um, here are the slides from our meeting where we showed you this as one option for the ad. Oh wow! Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, all of which sounds about right. She brought the receipts. Sounds about right for that whole situation. I, I thought it was a clever ad. If it had been anything other than like a, exposing a massive security vulnerability in almost every American's phones, I don't know. So, uh, were there any other commercials that popped out to you? I thought. I, I guess what struck me most about it was the was the sort of the the who the ads were targeted at, right? Like it was it was a very younger crowd type of targeting. So much crypto, right? Like electric cars. Well, I wonder about the crypto. If you actually could get them to tell you what did it, what was their target audience there? I don't know that yeah. it was a young audience. I think they're hoping that the in-laws click on this uh-huh. and like, I keep hearing about this crypto. What's and, this crypto thing? And these people advertise in the Super Bowl. Therefore, this is my entry point. <laughs> therefore, it's legit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that was probably the value proposition. Oh, man. Um, anyway, and then there was, of course, the halftime show. I love the halftime show. Uh, I thought it was really well done. Yes. Um, of course. Of course. We I'm are, of a certain we are, generation. We are. We are of the age, right? We're, we were sweating to the oldies. I mean, that was. It was pretty great. I. Um, I thought Dre was great. Uh, Dre was he, great. He looked good. You know, Fifty Cent did not look quite as good. Everybody's like, "Oh God, Fifty Cent's like seventy five cents. It's uh, he's gotten so big. But he was hanging from the ceiling. That, that was, was cool. pretty cool. That Come was on. cool. Mary J. Blige, amazing." Um, uh, she was great, yes. I thought. And some, I know there's some people that didn't like that she did a, a sort of a slow number. I thought she sounded great. Yeah. I thought that song actually popped out more yeah. than the rest. Yeah. I mean, it was it was you know a bunch I, of familiar I, tunes. So I like I like I like the people who were surprised that Snoop that there was a picture of Snoop uh, 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 getting high before the like you know smoking what? marijuana before the. I was like, do you know who Snoop is? Like, I think that might be in the contract. Right. Though. Seriously. Uh, <laughs> those, those are the brown M and M's. Yeah, Snoop's sort of uh, yeah right. <laughs> He's um, always but fine. but I, I I loved the sort of I loved all the people who like I, there was like this massive freak out like you know um, what did, uh, Charlie Kirk called it sexual anarchy right I didn't think <laughs> like, it was a very sexualized sexual look for for a program most famous for the uh, right, the, the wardrobe jet, incident right. um, and we I didn't feel like that was a particularly sexualized no. set of performances no. I thought the step routine like choreography yeah, really and cool. aesthetics wise was super cool yeah. that was actually the most creative part of the whole deal yes. although I kind of liked the whole like the housing deal and the cars it you know you definitely felt L A yes um, oh no there's a, it was it was such a I mean what I loved about the mu- the music was L A like it was it wasn't mm-hmm. just like it wasn't just like rap of no, the early not, of this the early aughts this wasn't East Coast no this is what this was West Coast yeah for sure no I thought right. that was very cool well done and and I frankly usually think the Super Bowl halftime performances right. are right. awful I mean that was actually creative I mean there was one like was it Miami where all we remember from the halftime show was Left Shark right Left Shark was pretty great <laughs> but that's it like <laughs> yeah. Katy Perry not so much but Left Shark absolutely um, compare I will take I will take this over Left Shark I would love to have seen Left Shark actually make an appearance like that just becomes a Super Bowl thing where Left Shark's in there <laughs> where is Left Shark going to show up in this year's absolutely show? now you're talking all right you wanted for some reason you wanted to talk about Encanto no I just thought we you know I'm looking for things since you still have not watched. Boba Fett, I still which not. blows my mind. Although I did go on uh, Smuggler's Run, uh, the Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run ride at Disneyland. Well, forgetting Canto, let's talk about Disneyland. Yeah. All right. What uh, what worked well? What has not worked well? What worked well? So we took the girls to Disneyland. This, to, we did California Adventure on Saturday. We did Disneyland on Sunday. Um, and and it was great. We had a wonderful time. Um, what worked well? Um, so we made the decision um, to stay on site. Um, okay. So we actually, instead of getting two rooms at like a nearby hotel, we squeezed into one room at the Grand California. I bet that was nice. It was it was amazing how much easier, especially for the California Adventure Day, because the Grand Californian is basically in California Adventure. Oh right, backs up to like, it's over the there Grizzly by Peak. Soaring and Grizzly Peak yep. and all that. Yeah, um, and I love so, Soaring by the way. So we were able Soaring's to. Fun. We didn't do Soaring. Um, <laughs> God, that's like. Did you tell me you did the cars ride? So I was going to say, so on Saturday, our highlight was the cars ride, was oh, race car racers. I love that ride. So Maddie is six and Sydney is three, right? And I was a little worried. Yeah, three. Was, it, it, well, but, it no, but Sydney, lo- no, I was more worried about Maddie. Oh. <laughs> the, you know, the first kid no, right. nervous. My like, girls had yeah. you know concerns when yeah. it first took off. Yeah, She loved it. That's awesome. They, they both loved it. They were like, wee! I would say for overall like length of time yes. that you get quality experience and just novelty and difference from everything yes. else, I think that may be the best thing to do there. So, 
you know, I mean, the longest, I think the longest ride is, is, the, is um, Rise of the Resistance, right, is, is, is the Star Wars ride. Um, but so um, what I loved about it was I thought it was a perfect gateway ride for Maddie because it was a legitimate, legitimately fast, like, roller coaster experience. So now she's like, what else can we try? But, but like, no, no, um, no inversion, right, no flips. Yep, yeah, yeah. Um, all the fastest parts were not in the dark. The fastest parts were out in the daylight. That's part like, of what makes right, it fun. Yeah. Bank curves. And you've been going for a while before it gets to right, that. So she had gotten used to being in the car by that point. Yeah. Um, so that was great. Um, race car racers on Saturday was a big highlight. And then Sunday, the big highlight was we did we did London Falcon Smugglers Run. And how was that? Magical. So if you haven't done that before, so they put uh, there's a, lots of other stuff, but the central part of the ride is you put they put six of you in a mock up of the Millennium Falcon cockpit. And the two people in front are the pilots. The two people in the middle are the gunners. And the two people in the back are the engineers. Now, are you really doing anything, or are you just kind of pressing buttons? Beep, boop, 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 beep, boop. So the, the people, the, the, the engineers and the gunners are basically just pressing buttons. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, yes, you're firing, but, like, your firing isn't actually changing. Like, yeah. you know, yes, yeah. you're blowing things up. But the, but the pilots are really flying the thing. Oh, that's cool. And so we, without sort of fully appreciating what this would mean, you know, Sydney, the three-year-old, really wanted to be one of the pilots. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's so, awesome. So Sydney's in the left-hand <laughs> pilot seat. So one of the pilots controls left and right, and one of the pilots controls up, down, and speed. So Karen was up, down, and speed, and Sydney was left and right. And when I say that we crashed into everything, <laughs> I mean... You know, like at one point, so part of it, you're in, you're in a, like a, you're on a planet, like trying to chase down some ships, right? And then you go out and then the, the right hand pilot pulls the hyperdrive lever and you're out in the outer space. Um, and then you're in an asteroid belt, right? Um, and I'm hearing 3PO, right? The chances of surviving, uh, you know. <laughs> Never tell me the odds. Right. Well, except this time he, he was right. He was right. Um, <laughs> so Sydney, instead of trying to like swerve around the asteroid, she's like aiming for the asteroid. She's like, I got it <laughs> with and our then, ship. And when you hit, when you hit an asteroid, when you, when you crash into something, like the ship vibrates like you crashed into so something. So you guys had a lively ride. So the two folks, so there are six people. The two folks in the back were apparently, were these two adults who had apparently done the ride a bunch of times before. So they said to us at the end of the ride, um, well... That was about the worst flown version of this ride we've ever done and the most fun. And the most fun. Oh, that's awesome. I'm so glad that was their reaction. Because, because apparently, like, you know, you can actually avoid crashing into things. You're like, that's no fun to smoothly <laughs> go around stuff. That's really great. So th I, th I think race car racers and smugglers run were the highlights. Nice. Um, being on site, especially for California Adventure, super helpful. Um, you know, it was a holiday weekend, so it was very crowded. Yeah, of course. Um, inevitable. But I think the girls had a really good time. Awesome. Well, that's a happy note to end on. Yeah. So, and, and Kanto, you know, yeah, still stuck in time. Head. Yeah, plenty of time. I, you know, I think the real Encanto question we don't, is... We don't talk about Encanto. We don't talk about Encanto. Um, is it amazing or is it terrible? Uh, okay, I don't take either position. Ah. I think it's fine. I don't think it's amazing at all, but I don't think it's terrible. I enjoyed it. It's no Moana. It's no Moana. It is no Moana, which I think it's, you know... So not, so not the best Lin-Manuel Miranda Disney movie. Yeah, I guess that's why I'm kind of drawn to because there are three, right? Because um, he's also Viv is Vivo Lynn? One of them is he, there's a third one that's I think it's yeah. is it Vivo? I don't know. But I think look, I think I think Encanto has some of the songs. Some of the songs really great. Um, I yes, generally Lynn, Lynn is Vivo, although Vivo is not Disney. The plot's fun. The plot's good. The characters. Their variation of powers, it's sort of like got this sort of Avengers vibe to it. it that That's all great. Um, it's very rushed. Encanto. Encanto. Things it, happen fast. It, things, it, it's like, I'm not saying it's an episode of Dora the Explorer, but there's a series of steps and we march very quickly through <laughs> the them. Plot. Yeah. And it didn't feel like if you compare it to a movie of roughly comparable time length like Moana, yeah. you know, I, I just think it's... I think it's. I think it targeted a younger audience. I think that's right, right? And so it's so it's great for what it was meant to be. I think that's right. I will just say there are. We can talk. I mean, I, I don't think we really need to talk about this more. The, there are a couple of um, the messages in some of the songs. I think are like um, surface pressure, right? Luisa's song. Um, I really like. Um, that was good. And 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 especially as the father of daughters, like I think yeah. that's yeah. You know, I think I think part of why the parts of Encanto that resonate with me the most powerfully, right, are the stuff that's clearly like aimed toward girls, 
mm-hmm. right? Girls as dis- distinct from boys, yep. right? And the sort of the broader like beat you over the head message, like you know you don't you, you can be special even if you don't have a gift, right? Right. And it's like okay, that's a bit of a layup of a message, but it's an important you message. You know, good good for the kids to be receiving it Absolutely. in all respects. I was it, it bugged me that uh, that her. Uh, Mother and father weren't Mirabelle. much, you know. When so, so I, spoiler alert: yeah. the grandmother's a problem. <laughs> Abuela Alba, she causes Ab- trouble. Abuela is uh, mas fuerte. He, uh, <laughs> she, look, I I watch all the time. I'm like, man, if somebody talked to my kid that way yeah, at that age, yeah. I yeah. would not have just been like, well, she's the matriarch. Yes, um, but you know, different cultures. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but yes, yes. Spoiler yeah. alert: the insofar as there's a bad guy in the movie, it's Abuela Alma. I know, which is kind of a bold move, right? Yes. Making making the, the yeah. Abuela the yeah. the bad guy for yes. sure. Um, the Bruno bit was great. I liked uh, it all. So one really weird thing on Disney Plus, right? Um, if you watch it with the subtitles on, because Karen and I are old and we watch movies with subtitles yeah, I'm on. Inc- I'm increasingly in that <laughs> camp for sure. Um, so all of the, all, every single word in Spanish in the in the in the movie is translated in the subtitles. So like when they sing the Encanto song, which is all in Spanish. Oh, so you get like the, the English rendition. You actually rendition. get the English, you got, you well, get the English convenient. I, I can mostly track it. Yeah. Um, and so well, but, that but, would actually bug me to have the English translation. But, well, well, that's the thing. And one of the things that I think Lynn does so beautifully, right, is he writes songs in both English that are simultaneously in English and Spanish. In, like In the yeah. Heights did that, right? Um, oh, man. Me, did we talk about In the Heights and how good it was? Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. It was really well done, <laughs> I thought. For something that's not easy to translate, yes. I thought, into film. I wasn't yes. sure how that was going to go. Yeah. I thought it was great. Yes. All right. Well, on, on this uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, love-in, uh, on that note, I guess we, yeah. should, we should go do, do other things because we're here in the building. Can we pause and roll back? I kind of catch – I want to I wanna... – Seems like a good place to go about our days, Bobby. Let's do it. Because um, we're here. Here we are on campus. Um, wow. Nice to see you. Not likewise. It's been nice being back in here. It's, it's more fun this way. It's weird. Anyway, he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, you know, we have, well, I suspect that the Russia situation is going to have plenty to talk about. But also, send us topic ideas. So wait, it's been three weeks since our last show. True. What do you think? Uh, I think we'll be back within two weeks, maybe one week, because I think the Russians might give us a lot to work with. I'll, I'll take under three weeks, because three weeks is spring break. Oh, that's for sure. Okay, we got to do Because like, next then. week is March. All right. On that note, guys, stay safe out there. Adios.